Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, which is a special Smart World Green Building Week 2020, we catch up with UK Green Building Council's Chief Executive Julie Hiragoyan for her thoughts on 2020's key green policy announcements for the sector so far. We dial Paul DiPino, the co-founder of B Corp Joseph Homes, which is striving to create energy positive housing in the UK. And Mott McDonald's Global Lead for Sustainability and Climate Change, David Stranati, discusses what a delayed COP26 means for climate action across the built environment sector. So yes, welcome along to the 91st episode of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. Um, I don't quite know how we're on that number of episodes already, um, but time in 2020 is somehow going super fast and super slow at the same time. So I guess that that's how. Um, If you're here, you're listening to the voice of ED's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm delighted to be back in the ED offices in West Sussex this week for the first time since lockdown started in March um, and to be seeing our content editor, Matt Mace, outside of Teams, Zoom or WhatsApp for the first time in months too. How are you doing, Matt? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Um, It's been a pretty unusual period, all things considered, even though lockdown has essentially kind of well, certainly the South East has come and, and passed. I know that's not the case everywhere. Um, but it was kind of starting to feel like a bit of a routine, you know, working in lockdown. And now it's as things start to reopen again, it's kind of readjusting again. So it's a, it's a strange period, but I certainly can't, uh, you know, we've certainly got it better off than a lot of people. So I won't complain. No, I saw a tweet the other day and it said something like, oh, everyone's talking about the new normal, but it's actually about the next normal and then the next normal after that, and then the next normal after that, and we don't really know how often these next normals are going to happen. Exactly. Um, and for people that have been listening to past few episodes will know that Matt's face slash voice has not been um, present. So what's been keeping you busy recently? So quite quite a lot. Um, in terms of work alone, uh, I've been taking on a lot of our uh, reports, um, so I've just been working on that. We we launched the new Green Recovery Mission Possible campaign recently, which I've been uh, taking quite a, a front seat on. And so we we published the, the blueprints for for business for a green recovery, which is available to download via your website, which kind of outlines the areas where businesses should be looking to to kind of drive a green recovery within their own organisations and, and across their value chain. And to build on that, we've now got sector-specific reports coming up, the first one coming at the end of this month. Uh, basically, how certain sectors are grappling with the challenges that, that COVID-19 has kind of introduced, but also the opportunities that green recovery and legislation on the horizon will bring for that. So that's taken up a lot of my time. And then I suppose mm-hmm. just personally and probably quite apt for, for, for this podcast discussion is I have just bought a house, a real doer-upper as it goes. So um, a lot of my spare time and some of my work time has just been spent uh, getting it into a into a somewhat livable condition, which is it, it kind of half is. I have, a, I have a bedroom and I have a kitchen now, but not much else. So that that's um, that's kind of why I haven't been around to... Mm-hmm. to, to in a podcast, I'm sure our, I'm sure our listeners would probably appreciate the break away from me. You know, there's, there's you know such thing as too much of a good thing, isn't there? That is the most you thing I've heard you say in a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's great to get back together um, for this specially themed episode, which, as you say, is marking World Green Building Week 2020. Um, and that event this year starts on Monday, the 21st of September. And the theme that the organisers have chosen this year is hashtag Act on Climate. 
Um, so with that theme in mind, the World Green Building Council is using the occasion to showcase trailblazing net zero projects and strategies across the sector and to encourage the laggards to follow suit, to give them a bit of a kick, really. Um, and as well as the environmental benefits of net zero buildings, this campaign is going to encourage actors all across the sector and beyond to measure and communicate the benefits that decarbonising sectors like construction, heat, energy and building materials can have for communities and the economy, as you say, in recognition of the impacts of the pandemic on well-being, social issues um, and on finances, too. Um, so I have my fingers crossed that we're going to see some really exciting announcements, commitments and research coming out over the next few days. And we'll be keeping a BDI on that. So for this special episode, I've spoken to experts from across the sector at what has been a period of really rapid change here. We've already talked on varying lockdown restrictions and how much that can affect people. Um, but for this sector as well, so much legislation and policy support packages have changed too. I'd say it's been something of a whirlwind year for people working in this field. Um, and there's perhaps no organisation that's had to keep as many plates spinning here as the UK Green Building Council. Um, so it was really great to catch up with the CEO, Julie Hiragoyan, who is a regular feature on Easy. And we caught up to talk about climate activism during lockdown, building and rebuilding business cases and, of course, net zero policy roadmaps. So I think without further ado, let's get into the interviews and play that talk with Julie in full. Thank you so much, Julie, for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. You're welcome. Very nice to be here. <laughs> By be here, I mean I'm assuming that you're calling in from your home. I am indeed. Very nice to sort of be with you, I guess is what I meant by that. <laughs> of course. And I know that my colleagues have spoken to you a lot recently and that you're hopping on our webinar next week. Um, but the last time that I got to catch up with you was I literally looked back and it's a full year. So yes. this time last September, we were both at the London climate strikes. Um, yes. And it, it was just great to see so much activism from this sector. There were banners and signs from all different kinds of professions. There were hundreds of people gathered around the offices. So I have to ask what's what's been happening since then? Um, well, of course, COVID-19 has put some kind of a stop to some protests and demonstrations in person um, for obvious reasons, although not all, um, which has been interesting. But um, from, a, from a climate ambition point of view and climate action point of view, I don't think it has dampened our or our members' appetite for action on climate change. If anything, I would say it has um, really accelerated since that time a year ago. Um, one good example of that is if you remember when we met on that day, we launched our climate commitment platform at UKGBC, um, on which we had profiled a small number of our members, sort of mm -hmm. corporate commitments on climate change, um, where they were trying to get to by when their headline climate targets and those sorts of things. We've now got almost 30 firms profiled on that platform and counting. Um, and a large number of those firms and a large number and a growing number of our members are signing up to 
uh, not just kind of ambitious climate targets and, and carbon goals, which is absolutely crucial, but to a commitment which is called the Net Zero Carbon Buildings Commitment, right. um, which has been around for about that long, but to be honest, has only really um, gained and gathered a lot of momentum more recently. And that's um, it's really a commitment to ensure that all of the buildings or areas that one occupies or that are under one's control um, as an organisation are net zero carbon in operation by 2030, and then to go beyond that and try try and um, advocate for net zero carbon throughout the whole kind of sector and the whole value chain by 2050. So that's really kind of galvanised quite a lot of action and leadership within the industry. And we're, as UKGBC, we as an organisation and I personally have been calling on all of our members to sign up to that commitment as a, as a kind of de minimis um, mm-hmm. and then to build on that with um, with more ambitious targets and commitments wherever they can. So we are just next week, actually, um, watch that space. We'll be announcing because it's World Green Building Week next week. So we will be announcing a whole um, number of new signatories to that commitment, along with the World Green Building Council, who will be announcing lots of signatories all over the world to that commitment. So I think it's fair to say... Um, you know, buildings and the built environment sector have remained very, very active on the sort of the, you know, the, the climate change, uh, climate emergency and climate change action. Um, there's still a huge amount of work to do, but there is no dampening of um, ambition and commitment from our end. That's really promising to hear, even if a bit of it had to be shifted online. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned about the net zero buildings commitment, which we're going to be talking about later in this episode um, as well. But having a flick through the website, something that stood out for me is that UKGBC has been crowdsourcing net zero yep. solutions and expertise in, I think that initiative closed this week. Am I right? We've extended the um, deadline for submissions. So any of those people listening to your podcast could still submit um, solutions onto the portal. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. This is um, this has been a, a long time in sort of fruition um, in terms of us wanting. It's really part of the shift that we're seeing, both within our members generally, but also just just within industry at large. Which is the you know we many years ago we started with the sort of why why bother what's the business case why should I change why is climate change an issue for my business why should I talk to my board about it etc so there was a kind of big business case phase then there was a what does it mean what does net zero carbon mean and we've done a lot of work on that Um, we and others have done a lot of work on that in the last 24 months from a building's point of view in terms of we're now getting much greater alignment and clarity on what net zero carbon building should actually mean in terms of what scopes of emissions, how do you measure and verify some of that, what is the minimum energy efficiency performance that you should achieve before you even look to kind of do renewables or offsetting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and so um, the, the, the next phase after that really is how do I do it? Of course. Uh, you know, I know why to do it, I know what I need to do now, I need to know how to do it. And that is really our big strategic push now as an organisation is to um, to find within our plethora of really experienced and highly qualified members and beyond our membership, what are the practical solutions that organisations that really want to go for it and and achieve these net zero carbon targets can deploy. Um, And that could be 
technological solutions, it could be business models, it could be behavior change um, campaigns, it could you know, the whole multitude of different types of solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, the likelihood is there is no silver bullet. One would need lots of, you know, almost a, a sort of a combination of many of those different things. Um, but what are they? And, and can we actually, uh, as you can see, play a bigger role in kind of getting them out to people quicker um, so that we can accelerate their their adoption of them um, and their achievement of, of, of those ambitious goals. So that's where the rationale for the solutions portal um, came. Um, we've been discussing it with our board for sort of 12 to 18 months. And um, uh, you'll have seen, if you've been onto the portal, that it is very much being driven by, um, I guess, what's kind of traditional innovation theory. So you sort of identify specific challenges and then you identify and crowdsource the solutions to those challenges. And unless you're quite specific about what the challenge is, it's quite difficult to do it in a kind of meaningful way. You know, um, you could just get all, everything in sundry. So we've specifically right. focused around net zero carbon and we've specifically focused on um, two quite, quite um, one more generic and one very specific challenge um both uh both existing buildings um and we are absolutely looking for anyone and everyone to give us their ideas solutions they could be tried and tested and out there and market ready or they could be completely off the wall new ideas of, of, of things that they'd like to try um there'll be we have a steering group there'll be a whole process around um you know the steering group which is made up of many of our members actually working their way through those, working out which ones really could demonstrably lead to kind of impact, measurable impact and improvement, um, and then a whittling down of which which ones are, are the most viable, the most likely to be widely adopted, and then really pushing those out. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of, you know, start big and kind of funnel into some more specific and kind of really meaningful solutions. But we're hopeful at the moment it's a pilot we're hopeful that if the process works, we'll do it again and again and again and, you know, um, hopefully um, drive the uptake of more um, innovative and other solutions out there in order to achieve what we're trying to achieve. Oh, fantastic. And I know you mentioned there you said that the discussion has sort of gone through various stages and right now we're at the how on earth do we do this yeah. um, stage. But the council's also been doing some research quantifying the cost benefit of both new net zero buildings and of nature-based solutions. I don't yeah. even want to say specifically for buildings because there's things in there like citywide drainage systems and yeah. green spaces. Um, and so obviously there there is still a bit of the, the business case discussion going on and it seems that this isn't a, a linear discussion. No, you're quite right. It's It's perhaps overly simplistic to say that it's you know, one stage after another. Actually, with the business case, I think it's continually being very explicit about why this stuff makes sense. And to be fair, that case changes all the time. So costs are coming down for many of the um, types of solutions that we're talking about, whether that's renewable energy or, you know, to, to your point on nature-based solutions, you know, sustainable urban drainage systems or green walls. Um, we're getting better at better better and better at knowing how to do those things and we are getting better and better as an industry at, at bringing you know at, at implementing them and bringing the costs down and innovating and, and and so on so that case changes all the time i think that 
ultimately this is part of the how as well is um and specifically you mentioned the the report we launched last week around um, the cost evaluation study for net zero carbon buildings, it's almost synonymous with the how do I do it? You know, you, you sort of, on, in that study, we looked at two um, real life projects in London, one tower block and one resi uh, tower. Uh, well, sorry, one office block and one resi tower. And we, um, we, both of which have got sort of design um, specifications in today's real life scenario. So we called those the sort of baseline. And then we worked with the project teams to say, well, how would one adapt those to achieve and meet 2025 net zero carbon targets, both in terms of operational efficiency and embodied carbon, and 2030 targets of of net zero carbon, again, both operational and embodied, which of course are much more stringent, right? So you're ratcheting up the sort of um, efficiency and the embodied um, improvements over time. And I think, so, so by, by the very nature of doing that, we're, we're practically working out what is, how does the design need to change? What needs to be taken into consideration to achieve some of those? And some of those are quite challenging. Um, and therefore, how much would that cost at today's costs? I think without that, it's really, really difficult to influence um, on a project by project basis or almost an investment case basis. Um, the, the, you know, the decision makers um, that are grappling with the how do I do it, uh, it, it you know, that, that's the sort of information they're likely to need, right, in terms of really making the change today. And actually what was really encouraging um, was that the certainly the 2025 targets were very much achievable today with the kind of design and techno- te- technical solutions that we've got available to us at three to five or three to six percent it was really um, 3.5 percent I think for resi and 6.2 percent additional capex for the office um, so those are really kind of quite marginal costs if you think about the added value that that's likely to recoup over that assets lifetime those sorts of findings I think really inform the debate in a much more meaningful way around why would we not do it mm-hmm. um, when we think about some of the costs, uh, you know, the, the uh, hugely um, much, much higher costs of retrofitting, for example, buildings once, um, you know, in 5, 10, 15 years time. Um, so, so that's really why we think that those those studies are still really important. It is still important to make the business case. You're quite right. It's, it's continually important and it is continually changing. And I think we owe it to ourselves and the industry to, to share some of that. Um, some, you know, it's fair to say that perhaps some of the commercial implications of achieving some of the high standards that are being achieved on one-off projects aren't always shared. Um, we were of the view that that information is absolutely critical to actually influence those decision makers and we should do more of that. And we are in a period now where I think value is being measured differently and redefined. Policy is likely to change very quickly. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'd like to talk, talk to you about for the last few minutes we have, I think. So we've talked quite a lot about the work that the council and its members um, have been doing now. But the big question is obviously whether the government's approach will bring this level of ambition and action across for the for the whole sector. Um, so what what do you make of the provisions that have been made so far and what are you hoping to see? So what's your wish list now for the for the coming months? Um, it's, uh, it's a big question. I wish this would be long. <laughs> um, I think there's sort of two different levels of response and they're, they're inextricably linked. 
Um, the first is that we know uh, that the current policy framework for buildings, both new and existing, of all different asset types, and those have slightly different regulations and, and, um, and, and policy frameworks around them, are not adequate to achieve net zero carbon buildings as they stand. So there is a gap in the policy framework um, in front of us. There is a lot of work to do to, um, to, to sort of plug and close that gap. Um, and to give you some very practical examples, we don't yet um, incorporate all operational energy uses within regulations. We only look at you know, regulated energy uses, which exclude plug loads or, um, you know, um, cooking uh, appliances and those sorts of things within, within buildings. So there's a big swathe of energy use within a building that's not included in our regulations. Another good example would be embodied carbon. Um, whilst some local authorities like London, GLA, have started to talk about um, whole life carbon assessments, by and large at a national level, embodied carbon is still not being addressed by our uh, policy uh, framework as it stands. So those are just examples. There were lots and lots of others. I mean, existing homes is, a, is another classic, um, and I'll come on to that in a minute. Um, there is a huge amount of work to do to plug that gap. Most importantly, uh, almost as a headline of our sort of detailed wish list, if you like, across all of that would be a long-term trajectory that's really clear on where for different asset types and for different activity types like new construction or refurbishment or existing buildings, you know, where will we be in 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years time and how will that achieve that net zero whole life carbon for all buildings target by 2050? That is our absolute kind of number one wish from, from government. Without that, it is, it is very, very difficult for the industry to respond um, in a meaningful long-term sort of way. You know, a lot of these uh, real estate assets are long-term assets, um, long-term investment um, classes, and they require, you know, us to not be sort of doing this in a piecemeal fashion, but actually to do um, to do something that's going to last the test of time. So that that's that's a really big ask. Um, it's also pretty critical given that COP26 is coming up and we need to demonstrate how we are actually going to achieve our net zero by 2050 target. Um, sector by sector plans and roadmaps and decarbonisation roadmaps are, are definitely a crucial part um, to have a crucial part to play in that. The Committee on Climate Change has called out for that. We're calling out for that. In fact, we are likely to be doing some work on just that, a, a sort of, you know, a, zero carbon roadmap for the property and construction sector out to 2050, which should then inform that long-term policy trajectory. Um, so, so I think without getting sort of too detailed in the specifics of any individual policy measures for which, you know, with the future home standard, lots of consultation responses, we've, we've submitted a response, the planning uh, white paper and so on, each, each of these needs to be pulling in the same direction and at the moment they're not necessarily. Um, the second key part to my answer would be around green recovery. You know, we can't ignore the fact that um, COVID uh, has has thrown a, a sort of massive curveball at us at you know at, at very short notice. And I think it was Christiana Figueres that said, you know, "We've been talking about the next ten years uh, for a long time now, but in, the reality is that with coronavirus pandemic now, it's literally the next eighteen to twenty four months." that will be the make or break for us to achieve a 1.5 degree world. Um, you know, if we're investing 
trillions of dollars globally into our recovery plans. If that, if those scales of investment are going into the wrong things, um, by which I mean sort of fossil fuel heavy or high carbon intensive um, assets and asset classes, we won't make it. So we absolutely have this sort of critical duty of care kind of under our noses right now to get that right. And what was really encouraging early on in, in the sort of in the pandemic and during lockdown was the proliferation of evidence that emerged around, um, uh, um, you know, the, the link between many of the sort of um, stimulus, uh, fiscal stimulus sort of in, uh, initiatives that could be um, deployed with, um, you know, greenhouse gas reduction and job creation and, you know, many of those that that, that led to um, greenhouse gas reduction, like retrofitting existing buildings, emerged continuously as being better, both for short and long term economic gain. So I think it's not just because, you know, we have to do it from a climate point of view, but actually there is real evidence that that will prove to be a more um, resilient recovery um, from an economic standpoint. Uh, in the backdrop of all of that, I think what we've now got, um, we did have some announcements in the summer um, statement um, by, the, by the Chancellor around Green Homes Grants. Some of those were clearly welcome, welcome having home retrofit back on the agenda, but it's not enough. And we need to know, to my first point, that that will be accompanied by much longer term plans for continued investment um, in the medium to longer term. Otherwise, um, you know, they're just they're just a drop in the ocean. Mm. I've, I've heard a really good phrase today. I was tuning into a WWS um, seminar and their chief executive essentially said it's great. But at this point in time, a paper promise is not enough. I promise that if we don't meet it, we don't really know what's going to happen or a promise without a road. Yeah. There. And that's what I'm I'm hearing from yourself, too. Very much so, yes. I think, you know, very, very practical um, roadmaps to, to drive exactly where we need to get to by when. And then sort of, you know, there's this, in, there's this um, really, really strong link between government vision and long-term direction sort of provision and industry then leadership. And at the moment, they're not, you know, never, never twine shall meet a little bit. They're, they're, they're not, they're not. So by COP26 in November next year, certainly for our sector, and that is something that UKGVC will be championing really, really strongly. Um, so thanks once again to Julie for her insight there. Um, she's always a complete pleasure to speak with and to listen to. So if you enjoyed well, that interview, like I'd encourage you to sign up for Inky's so much for Green Recovery Inspiration well, Session webinars, where she will be appearing on our first panel. That event's taking place on the afternoon of Wednesday, that's the 23rd of September, and if you're not around at that time and date, it's going to be recorded and made available on demand afterwards. Um, I'll be chairing an interactive masterclass that day on engaging key stakeholders throughout and beyond the pandemic, um, and my speakers for that panel are from Kia Group and Inspired Energy. Um, Matt, I know you have a session too, so would you mind giving the listeners a taste of what, what your session is going to be about? Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm chairing the the second session of, of that afternoon. Uh, it's largely focused on case studies from from organisations um, that are striving to build back better uh, by focusing on sustainable um, business. So this one kind of brings together um, 
organizations across different industries who are driving a green recovery in those industries through their people, their processes, their, their products. Um, so some familiar names on there, uh, Penelope Gurney, uh, the carbon program manager from BT. We've got Paddy Pope, uh, energy and carbon manager from the Bank of England. I actually met him for the first time in a hop-in session that we hosted uh, um, uh, <laughs> in one of those weird kind of almost like speed dating networking things where you get like 30, Please 90 don't call it to, speed date. <laughs> that's what it is. It's like you've got 90 seconds to speak. So yeah, I met, I met Paddy very briefly through then. Um, so looking forward to um, hearing from him and, and the Bank of England's internal work to to do that. We've also got Lenlease, which is, again, quite fitting for, for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, their head of sustainability and urban regeneration, Miles Lewis, will be on. And, and Paul Spear as well, who's the National Business Development Manager from Churchill Environmental uh, Services. So so that's my session. We'll be covering... The, the role of compliance, um, how to cut carbon in this kind of new normal and, and what that means for green buildings and transport in, per, in particular. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, all in all, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty jam packed day. And we're really glad to have so many great speakers from this sector on board at this crucial time. Um, but I'm aware that we digressed a little bit here and that this is a podcast, not a shameless plug for, for our webinars, although, of course, we be delighted if you tuned in. So we're moving on from Julie's talk, which gave a super broad overview of what's been happening in the sector in recent months, um, to zoom in on a smaller, super innovative company, which is redefining sustainability in the house building space. Joseph Holmes is a member of the UK GBC's net zero commitment that Julie talked about. It's also a certified B Corp and is working to develop energy positive homes by 2025, ensuring that they have benefits for well-being, for communities and for local economies, as well as for the environment. This all sounds pretty futuristic and lofty. Um, So I spoke with the company's co-founder, Paul DiPino, to break down its plans for achieving this vision, not only for its own projects, but for the sector at large and with policy supports. Paul specifically had some great comments on the Future Homes Standard and the Green Homes Grant. So for anyone following these developments, this is an interview not to be missed, if I do say so myself. Um, So here it is in full. Thank you so much for dialing into the podcast today, Paul. How are you? I'm, I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Um, and I'm feeling uh, really refreshed after just coming back from a holiday in Cornwall, which is my first break after quite an intense year. Oh, lucky for some. Where, where are you calling from today? Um, I'm actually in the office. Uh, we, we, we're back in the office two to three days a week, the people that are able to come in. So um, I'm, I'm in the office today. Uh, I've had a meeting and uh, I have to say it's great to be back actually it's just that feeling of routine isn't it and even as much as you can have a meeting on zoom or a call on teams it's not quite the same it's not quite the same and our experience has definitely been that we've got more productive and more achieved when we get together um, but that's that's not always possible now but it's been it's been a really help, helpful first step for us so um yeah it's been really encouraging and for sort of delivery of housing has that had to change in recent months as well well, there was there was there was definitely a pause, um, but um, building sites actually were probably 
ahead of the curve and and the government were encouraging to keep keep going after a period so we and we were very lucky our one that was live is a very big site it was very easy most of the work was happening externally it was really easy to easy to socially distance and put the, the measures in place so we were you know we were at the vanguard of doing that along with other developers mm-hmm. great well i think it's the first time that we've spoke isn't it paul it is yes and i'm i'm, I'm enjoying your podcast so um really really lovely to meet you finally it's still weird after a few years to realise that people do actually listen to my voice <laughs> after, after I do the recording. Um, but because it's a, it's your first time on, I think it'd be good to let everyone know a bit about your career and what you do and who Joseph Holmes are and what their sustainability um, work, work looks like too. I understand that you guys were recently certified as a B Corp and that you're currently working to deliver some energy positive buildings too, which sounds really exciting. So we, uh, Joseph Holmes is uh, 12 years old. Uh, we're a, we're a medium, medium-sized developer um, with uh, just over 2,000 units coming through our development pipeline, planning pipeline. So my title has recently evolved to Chief Innovations Officer to better reflect what I'm focused on within Joseph Holmes, which is to convert our strategic themes into action, keep us innovating and lead on our Live Well manif- manifesto commitments. Um, we set up our Live Well manifesto a few years ago and there are four elements to this, which is people, customers, neighbourhoods and planets. And the planet elements of that, the manifesto for that, is to build healthy homes that are energy positive, have no embodied carbon and great indoor air quality. So you asked about our, what we're doing for sustainability. Aside from setting out that high level strategic intent of where we're trying to get to, we currently, uh, for scope one and two, we're anticipating to be at net zero in the current reporting period. Um, but we want to go further. We were just about to start refurbishing our office. Uh, we've paused that, obviously, while we discover what the new normal might look like, and we're, we're consulting on that within the business shortly. Um, but we'd like to get that energy, energy positive, because we've said we can do it with our homes, and we think we can do it with our, off- our office, because, as I'm sure we'll get into later, there's a, there's, a, there's a huge piece of work needed here, and we all need to be doing as much as we can. So, by far, as you would imagine, the biggest um, part of our emissions is Scope 3, mm-hmm. uh, which is our buildings we're building and on our developments coming through planning I'm really proud that we are around 80% carbon saving against building regs using effectively a fabric first approach which is approaching passive standards and you know at least in this country an innovative approach to heating and hot water which we've been working on we're pretty sure it's the first time this we use that in scale in this country it's used elsewhere I've used it in my house. It's a really efficient uh, MVHR system that uses very little energy because the fabric of the building is so good. So when we add renewables to that, we're confident that we'll be able to get to net zero on future schemes, depending on the height, because big, tall buildings are quite difficult because they've got no roofs, not very much roof space to put solar right. on. But more, the majority of what we're doing is more mid-rise. And therefore, we believe we can get beyond net and we're setting ourselves the goal of 2025 to do that by adding renewables to a really energy frugal design 
that we're, we're working on. You mentioned B Corps as well. Yes, you're right. We, uh, it was a really proud moment for us in lockdown. We've been admiring B Corps companies from afar for, for many, many years. And, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a climber and I like climbing up mountains, walking in the hills. And I've always admired Patagonia as a business for many years. And in fact, we give, uh, Yvonne Chauvinard's book to all of our new staff and have been doing for years. Um, and they were B Corps, so we knew about B Corps, we admired the companies, and we always thought we would do it. Um, and our, t- our time came, end of last year, we thought it was right for us to do it. And so we applied, and, w- and actually the assessment started. I got the call, the email from America, uh, one week after lockdown. And I said, oh, uh, and it was a lot of uh, questions and a lot of digging into the company and what we're doing to mm-hmm. go through the assessment. And I, I said, I'm going to need some more time. We've just gone into lockdown in London. Right. And they were really understanding. We worked with them and it was, uh, and it, and it was great. We, it, you know, it got announced during lockdown. So we, we're really, really proud about that. Um, the great thing about that was it aligns almost perfectly with our live well principles. And the really important part is that it becomes legally binding on us to consider our workers, our customers, suppliers, community and very importantly the environment great well obviously all of those topics are important but the theme for this this year's wild green buildings week is of course net zero which we've touched on a a lot there but we've mentioned off the call as well that your company is part of the net zero commitment for ukgbc which covers embodied and operational carbon and why is that commitment so important and what what about embodied carbon a lot happened in lockdown for us. Um, we, so I've been talking to the, U, we've been a member of the UK GBC. We joined last year. Um, and I've been talking to them about signing in for a while. And I got, finally got round to processing and dealing with it during lockdown because I was, I was at home. So, um, uh, so we, we are, you know, we're really proud to be part of that. We were, we, for many years, we've been getting on quietly doing our thing and working this stuff through. But what became apparent to me is that we needed to be advocating more and showing real leadership in, in the industry because we've, we've always tried to raise the bar in, in our industry. Um, and so it felt important to us to do that. And so we were, we're really proud to be part of that. I was really surprised actually that we are one of less than a hundred companies or cities or regions that have done that. And that's not just in the UK, that's worldwide. Um, so there's only us and one other UK developer, I believe, residential developer that is. There's, there's quite a few commercial ones. So there's still a way to go. I, it feels like it's building momentum and I, I very much encourage other uh, people to sign up. So, yeah, I mean, embodied carbon um, is it's really important. Most of what people talk about when they're talking about net zero is operational um, uh, uh, carbon and energy. And embodied is almost the bit of the iceberg below water that almost nobody's focusing on presently. Um, so we, we are. We've been we've been looking at that. And if you. I mean, our ambition and why we've, we've made quite a, uh, you know, an ambitious target in our intent on this is that we believe that if you use local, natural, plant-based materials, then it's possible to make buildings become carbon stores because natural products sequest carbon. Mm-hmm. So it ought to be, and it is possible on, um, on really small schemes, you can make buildings uh, carbon negative for embodied carbon if you if you use the right materials now it's a bit harder with bigger buildings and it, especially because of recent fire rate changes 
and the EW1S regime, which has meant that wood isn't really an option for in residential buildings. Commercial buildings, there's a lot of really uh, great staff and some of the UK GBC um, members are building uh, wooden commercial buildings, which are, you know, it's fantastic. So I'm really excited what's going on there. I was also really encouraged. I went to the World Green Building Council uh, Net Zero Conference in Brussels last year. Uh, and yes, I did get the train. Uh, and and I, was, I was really encouraged, actually, that the steel and concrete industry were there represented and seemed to be engaging in the in the debate and realizing that they need to lower the carbon footprints of their products and, and there's some really interesting things happening in that arena albeit that it's not possible for them to sequester carbon in the same way as natural materials so you know if we can use more natural materials i think that's a fantastic thing for us to be doing um, so I, I guess in essence our, you know we we certainly believe that we can build small at housing level or low level we can build net zero operational buildings energy and embodied carbon and we we certainly believe and are aiming to scale that up into bigger buildings as well it does feel like we're at a bit of a moment really for these these sort of ambitious targets and these um new innovations but obviously there is the question of how to scale that up and for the house building sector the most recent piece of legislation to my knowledge in this is the futures home standard so i wanted to touch on that and get your take on it um, because obviously it was welcomed by some as a good first step and to scale up and standardize things a little but as we can see some companies are going further and some local authorities are already going further too yeah um I mean, it's great. Um, I mean, we consulted on the standard. We pushed mm-hmm. for increased standards from what they were consulting on, and we're really supportive of it. Albeit, uh, we don't understand the delay, because I understand uh, we're talking about 2025 now. So that could mean another million homes that are built in that period that aren't Paris-proof. Um, it's also a shame that it didn't evolve out of the Code for Sustainable Homes because, you know, we had a framework. It wasn't perfect um, and it needed some change. But um, uh, so it's, it's, it's a shame it's taken so long, but we really welcome it. And it really needs something like this, I think, to drive real change and innovation through the whole industry. We from what we are expecting to come out of it, pretty much our schemes at the moment going through planning are already at those levels. So for us, we will always be pushing beyond that. But I think it's a, you know, it, it, it's certainly a, a great thing that the government should be pushing and we'd be encouraging that to be brought forward. Great. Well, we've talked a lot here, I think, about homes that haven't been built yet or that are currently being built. But obviously a big issue in house building and this particular sector is the climate impact of existing homes and buildings. Um, and a lot of policy measures have been announced around this as part of the recovery measures and more, more are probably um, due this autumn. So I wanted to get your take on on this market as as well, Paul. Yeah, I, I mean, well, look, this is the um, this is the the huge bit of the iceberg um, because four out of five homes that we'll be living in in the year 2050 are already being built. You know, we so there's 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 something like 26 million homes that probably need to be changed their heating source or retrofitted or made more energy efficient. So um, that is an enormous number. It's something like 860,000 homes a year. Bearing in mind, I think last year the industry built 170,000. You know, we've, we've really got to 
put our foot to the floor to get on with that. Um, I mean, it's about 100 each hour that need to be upgraded. So that's, 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 you know, a huge, huge thing to do. So, um, the, uh, the Green Homes Grant, for instance, um, you know, really welcome that the government are, uh, enabling homeowners to use money to upgrade their properties. But again, it's, it's, it's another scheme that has, uh, there's been many of these schemes. It's a, it's very short lived. I think it's running out in March 2021. Ideally, what we need is a multi-decade scheme with cross-party support that is much bolder so that we can really make an impact on these properties. Because for £6,000, I think it is, there's a limited amount you can do with that. We're really supportive, but we think we need to go much bolder and much longer. Um, And for instance, there's a great um, scheme in the Netherlands um, that you may have come across called Energy Sprong. I won't try that in a Dutch accent, um, <laughs> but um, it's much bolder. And, I, and I, I think we could really learn something from that. And the great thing about it is that so what, what they've done is they they put much more money into the projects up front, completely uh, completed a deep retrofit of houses, completely upgraded insulation, external cladding, solar panels on the roof, I think batteries in the houses as well. And what they've done is um, they've funded it via energy savings over 30 years. So taken a really long-term view and worked out they can get payback over that time. And of course, to do those sort of things, you need governments to get involved in some way. And, it, and it, yes, it is more expensive, but they've shown that it pays itself back over that, that length of time, which is, and you know, we've, we've, we've got to do this. We're, we're, we're potentially just dabbling around the edges at the moment. Well, Rishi Sunak, if you're listening, you've been told. <laughs> um, but Paul, Apparently he does listen. <laughs> but to our podcast, we will never know. You never know. Uh, but I think that's all the questions I have time for today, Paul. But thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, really, really good to meet you. So thank you once more to Paul for taking part there. And if you're listening... Um, House building and existing homes have been flagged so many times to ministers by the Committee on Climate Change and by various other bodies, but I do think they sometimes get sidelined in broader net zero discussions. You see a lot of protests around things like road transport, fossil fuels and aviation, but I think that housing can sometimes get underestimated. Um, and with that in mind, I'm going to surprise Matt. I've got a little pop quiz that I've written okay. down. <laughs> OK, this, this could be very, very bad uh, score from me, but let's go for it. So as you say, you've just moved home and I've also moved home in the past year. So we should, in theory, know a lot about um, the environmental impact of housing, right? <laughs> <laughs> you don't in theory. Be... <laughs> um, so I've got my questions down. Um, Matt, how much carbon do you think that the average home in the UK emits annually from its operations? Oh, God. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to ballmark that figure. Um, it's in tonnes. Yeah. And it's in single digits. Single digits. OK, I was going to say 20, but I'll say <laughs> eight. I mean, you're you're very overestimating, actually. So for the UK, it's 2.7 tonnes. OK. Um, but the good news is that we're faring much better than the US, where the average home is on eight tonnes. So you were correct for the US, which was going to be my next question. Um, and out of the carbon that our homes emit each year, what proportion do you think we can trace back to heat? Because that's that's the big the big thing here. Carbon to heat, carbon traceable to heat from homes as a percentage. Mhm. Two thirds. Eighty percent. Oh, okay. 
that was a pretty much a big shocker for me when I yeah. Um, and it was pretty mean of me to ask you that question. <laughs> but, yeah, it's good. I don't think I don't think our heating works in our house at the moment yet, so that's why I'm not used to it. Very eco-friendly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but not so good for communities and well-being and all the all the rest. <laughs> no, exactly. It's still, um, like, it's end of September and it's still boiling, so, you know. You say um, that, it was pretty chilly this morning. Yeah, I mean, right now, though, it's like a, it's like a nice it's crisp summer's day, although, <laughs> albeit with a few autumn leaves on the floor, so. Yeah, but we digress again. <laughs> and the reason that I asked this is because I wanted to open space for us to have a bit of a broader conversation. As we've said, we've both moved home recently, and I was thinking it would be good to discuss sort of if you could make change any legislation that would make your home and other ones more sustainable because this is a a field where legislation is changing pretty quickly at the moment Mm. Um, if you could actually sit down and get get your idea across the table what would you pick so i'm interested to hear your one first because um when you kind of mentioned it to me beforehand i'm quite interested to see how this this would be implemented so if you go first plus that gives me a bit time i've got a couple that i'm kind of spinning plates I'm, I'm deciding which one to, to knock over and go with so okay so for me I I live in a small town in East Sussex and we have really infrequent buses and trains and we've also got a really big town development plan so thousands of new homes are going to have to be put up in the coming years and they're being put like nowhere near the station or near any of the bus routes and because they're a bit far out it's a bit more countrified and a lot of roads have no pavement and no cycling infrastructure so for me something that mandates better public transport provisions would be great because essentially the message that we're getting at the moment is if you want a new build property and you want affordable housing you have to be car dependent Mm. and that doesn't really sit very well with me okay now that's a really good point and i think and i don't mind it's not as well fleshed out as yours but i think two areas where i feel like they 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 vary because I live in a house now, but I used to live in a flat and I thought I was going to be in the flat for a long time. And I thought there's no way. Um, and that, that was obviously a rented property. So it was a whole different kettle of fish in terms of landlord talk. But even if I bought a flat and owned it, there was no way if I wanted an electric vehicle, for example, that I would have a I had a designated car parking space. But there's no way I'd be able to charge that. Um, I wouldn't be able to kind of put a. Mm-hmm. Um, a battery pack or a power wall or anything on my flat and run the cables out of a third floor window down into um down into the car park it just wouldn't it just wasn't feasible and i think a lot of a lot of new builds and certainly um you know i'm similar to you i live in a, a kind of a small town in the southeast um and a lot of new builds are happening and they're all kind of very much built on top of each other it, it's kind of you know, they're, they're free stories because they're kind of maximising the, the space around them. And it just doesn't seem like there's that much space for um, for on-the-street parking in general. But to actually account for the fact that the way we are going to transport is changing, uh, a lot of people during lockdown probably realise they don't need a car as much. That's fine. But for those that do, they probably want to go more sustainable. And I think this this kind of electric vehicle future just isn't really accounted for in, in, in-house planning. Um, not many... New fields have the garage space, for example, to be able to kind of charge overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an oversight. And the other one is having having bought this new house and having to do a lot of work. With it, we literally stripped every room. We knocked a couple of walls down and everything and just loaded up a couple of skips 
and had someone kind of deal with that. It's um, um, when you're house building, you're like, okay, just put it in the skip, get it in the skip, and see what that goes. <laughs> um, it's almost that. It's almost that lack of accountability. That that kind of <laughs> once it's in the skip, I don't. Um, as long as it's not in my house, I was like, okay, where where that where that waste ends up as such. I um I don't really mind, and I think it goes back to that kind of whole local authority collection aspect that there's no standardised way of knowing what do I do with this item in terms of making sure that it's disposed of in a in a kind of small sustainable uh, manner. Like it's we we see a lot about um, curbside collection stuff for plastics and stuff that have value, but when you're kind of destroying bits of a house, it's it, you, you don't really see the the value in in using that waste again um and so it's not really a policy but just more i suppose kind of standardized information on this is what happens when you chuck all your tiles in a skip or or, or mm-hmm. use all these different materials in a skip i think it's just something i um i just wasn't aware of i was like okay i'm glad it's at my house but i have no idea where it's going yeah yeah of course and we've i think we've both talked there about the importance of seeing the built environment not as a standalone thing but part of broader interconnected systems so yeah. we've talked there about systems of transport and systems of materials but we also know that it's really interconnected with the heating and energy systems as as well and that brings us nicely on to our last conversation because this is one of the key things that I spoke about with Mock McDonald's global sustainability and climate change leader David Stranati. For those who haven't met David he's really knowledgeable chap he's been with Mock for eight years and he sits on the board of the UN Global Compact's UK arm and somehow he still finds time to chair the World Federation of Engineering Organisations Committee on Engineering and the Environment. So pretty great fount of knowledge and a good way to round up our three interviews for the day. So here is that talk with David in full. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks to you and and good morning to you and, and everybody else. Um, yeah, I think the last time that I spoke to you was just before lockdown. Um, so it feels like it's been a very long time, <laughs> even though it's only been a few months. You're right. It, it was a completely different environment because we were just, uh, you know, hearing about COVID and pandemic and we were wondering what was all about. And, um, and I think now we know uh, indeed. No, I know. And I can see that you're, um, speaking to me from your home. Um, today, so how how have you and your team been working, and how have how have you found that? That's an interesting uh, aspect and point of COVID because we've been coping relatively well. Uh, we moved immediately on working from home, and this is due to the fact that we were all equipped uh, with all the IT uh, stuff, so uh, laptops, programs, software, and uh, so we've been doing pretty well and broadband uh, has been helping us quite a lot so overall we've been in touch quite quite well and doing good stuff Mm -hmm. there was a period though when construction and more of the on the ground stuff had to pause though right yeah and that was due effectively to the proximity um, but effectively working uh, proximity of people working on site Um, but ourselves being consultant and engineers and working on design uh, we were able, uh, thanks to, to, as I said, to the software and to the nature of our business, to carry on uh, doing what we were doing um, remotely. Mm-hmm. 
Great. And yeah, while we haven't caught up in a while, one of my colleagues did cover the fact that Mark McDonald signed up to the World Green Buildings Council's net zero commitment um, recently. And anyone that's been reading about this will know how different it is, perhaps, to other frameworks and how important it is, given the changing policy landscape um, at the moment. What what was it? What was the process like to to join that commitment and why was the decision taken to join that particular initiative? Well, um, as you said, the, this commitment has been around for a while. And um, very recently, in, we um, published two position papers around climate change uh, where we pledged to become carbon neutral uh, as an organization by the end of this year and net zero um, by 2040. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, this uh, commitment uh, of, of the uh, World Green Building Council is a perfect complementary aspect in, in actually uh, taking into action what are our inter- intentions and purpose. So it was a pretty straightforward uh, process to really embrace it. Um. And I know that it's just one of many initiatives that McDonald is in involved involved in what's the importance of sitting on things like um task force and industry coalitions and joint pledges rather than simply having your own own targets well uh the importance is multiple in this way we can um learn indeed uh what others are doing and what institutions are doing as well um but equally we can influence uh, because i want to believe that due to the nature of our organization we are employee owned uh as a business so we always look at the um long term um aspects uh, or in whatever we do in the strategy uh and therefore uh this is absolutely the right thing to do not just committing on on becoming a zero or carbon neutral by own uh in our own organization, but actually influencing our clients. And this is the strength, uh, for instance, of the World Green Building Council and uh, Zero Carbon Commitment, because effectively we need to work with our clients mm-hmm. in in, uh, in advising and, and, you know, suggesting for net zero uh, buildings. So I think uh, it's not just uh, an affirmation, a public affirmation about what we stand for, uh, but it is precisely this, learning, collaborating and, and influencing um, public bodies uh, like institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think that your sector has been quicker than most to respond to net zero, probably because a lot of these assets have such long life cycles. So they need to be net zero now if they're going to be net zero in 2040, um, 2050. But are there any cons of the fact that the industries responded really quickly by launching so many different yet kind of similar initiatives of course there are and and the main one is that you know um i tend to say uh, in sustainability um people the public agenda and uh, the opinion uh, is not interested in one topic but once you become interested uh then it, there's a multiplier effect of interests net zero uh, from the ipcc report 1.5 degrees it took less than one year to become law in the UK. Uh, and this says a lot about how pressing climate change uh, is as an issue. Uh, the main one uh, regarding having this flurry of uh, institutions uh, running their own 
um, you know, uh, groups and task force uh, about uh, net zero in the infrastructure sector is that we don't, we are missing um, a unified voice. We are missing a unified voice that effectively can influence uh, the government because ultimately um, net zero uh, is a much more complex um you know, uh, objective and target uh, to achieve than carbon neutrality. No organization will be able to uh, achieve net zero in isolation. Uh, carbon neutrality, we can, uh, offsetting, of course, purchasing, offsetting, or running our own offsetting uh, schemes. But then the net zero aspects, um, it is highly unlikely uh, that we are going to achieve them in isolation. So, we need a concerted effort. Uh, we need leadership. Uh, we need a very clear uh, direction and pathway on how to achieve net zero, where all the different players, uh, infrastructure uh, asset owners, investors, uh, designers, contractors, will know what is their role and, and will deliver uh, net zero for uh, the clients. So this is the main con. Uh, great interest great um, task force with great ideas and lots of enthusiasm, uh, but I guess that at some point we'll need a consolidation of, of all these uh, initiatives. Mm. Yeah, it does feel like we're at a moment in time where everyone has the same broad ambition, but the big ask is always, right, what what now? How do we flesh that out? What What, what do we need to do in the interim? Exactly, and uh, precisely what's, what's next. And the interesting aspect is that um, maybe there's a, uh, an aspect, uh, a responsibility of some of us, uh, because we tend to sit on two, three, if not even four of, of these coalitions. So I think uh, we need uh, to take this, um, you know, leadership role, responsibility, and facilitate uh, discussions uh, among the different institutions. Uh, so we can all be in a better place uh, pretty soon. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the importance of having the right messages sent to governments, and obviously right now is a really pivotal moment for that in that most governments have a broad figure as to how much they think their recovery plans are going to cost, and they've announced the first parts of this, but a lot of the rest of the pipeline still remains to be seen, so... We have to talk about the green recovery um, here in the U UK. Um, what, what do you make of some of the announcements that have been um, already confirmed for, for housing and infrastructure so far? I think that uh, it is a great starting point uh, because effectively um, the, the addressing the insulational um, properties, buildings, is absolutely the right thing uh, to do, retrofitting. Uh, I think we are going to hear more uh, about the infrastructure. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the triple build <laughs> message uh, goes remarkably well with the green recovery because we need to build the right infrastructure in the right way um, rather than just building, building, building. Uh, but I think that was a message we needed at the time as well. Because effectively, we need to bear in mind we are going through, and this has been said several times, uh, unprecedented times. Uh, the economy, the 
jobs, uh, job losses. So I think that we need to look at um, a broader, uh, you know, vision of, of the green uh, economy from even planting trees uh, to let the retrofitting of homes, improving the broadband, and making cities um, more attractive uh, for pedestrians and cyclists. Because these are all aspects that um, are fast to be done, they are labor-intensive, uh, I'm afraid, and there's a big multiplier effect. And they will make us uh, more resilient uh, to next events like uh, the one we are living now. Mm. Now, I saw recently that UKGBC had some research out and it was actually pricing um, the benefits of investing in some of those technologies. So even green spaces, living walls, green roofs. And it seemed to be that there wasn't really a fixed business case for that. So perhaps that would help. Indeed. And uh, sometimes the business cases are, are based on calculation without considering externalities and other aspects. I think, as we've been seeing so far, uh, you know, we are living in these unprecedented times, and therefore maybe we need to consider not just the externalities, but we need to uh, think about, uh, you know, the skilling people and, um, and, and even thinking about how the business case can even stack up uh, in order to make this uh, real, uh, because this is one of the main issues about uh, green recovery sometimes. And the picture is not complete. Uh, it's just a partial uh, picture or, or what uh, comes into the, the business case. Mm. So what in, in your ideal world, what, would you, what specifically w- would you be hoping to see um, in the coming months? I know that we are now officially into autumn, even though parliamentary autumn will probably run until next January. Um, so we are expecting things like the building strategy and the national infrastructure strategy. So if you could have sort of your dream wish list, um, what would be on but, Yeah, my dream wish list is that, um, first of all, all the different players and actors and institutions and all these coalitions uh, around Net Zero, they will find a way to communicate, collaborate, and and really get to to the point of providing one voice um, to the government. So th- th- that is the first one. Uh, I think that the second one, is, as I said, is considering, especially for the immediate and the short term, but looking at the long term as well, uh, this idea that uh, even planting trees, restricting homes, improving the broadband, and making cities more livable and attractive for pedestrians and cyclists. These are low-hanging fruits, so I would like them to see uh, mentioned, incentivized uh, pretty soon. Uh, on the longer term, I think we need to uh, look at what the kind of world we want and we we will have in 2050, and work uh, and work backward uh, on the kind of infrastructures uh, that we need. Uh, rather than moving from where we are 2020 to 2050. I think uh, the other way around is a much better way of, of you know, uh, planning and strategizing uh, what we need to achieve the 2050 uh, target of net zero. Mm-hmm. And that in itself, I think, speaks to the collaboration that you've talked about, that obviously a city or a town, um, everything has to work as part of a system. It doesn't just exist in a bubble. Correct. I mean, the, the, the concept of system is coming back uh, in the infrastructure sector. 
to my mind, has been always there, even if we talk about the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. To me, that, that's a system uh, of systems, because there are 17 goals all interacting among each other. Uh, but effectively, you are right. Uh, all the different infrastructures uh, are each, actually, set of assets, infrastructure assets, is a system. But then when we consider energy, transport, water, communication, you immediately see that uh, these are system of systems that if they're existing within a city, uh, they are already quite complex. And they are, in, uh, of course, engaging with us uh, as users. But then when we take cities, uh, you see that there are multiple cities, and between cities there are rural areas. So you immediately see that the, the systemic approach is um, the only one uh, that will allow us uh, to achieve the net zero target. Great. Well, that's a lot of food for thought, and I think that's a nice note to, to end our conversation on. So thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thanks to you, Sarah. It was a pleasure. Well, thanks once again to David for his time, because as I'm sure you gathered from our talk, he is one man with a very lengthy to-do list. Um, he was our last speaker for this episode, which does mean that we are almost out of time. So just a couple of things to flag before we sign off. As me and Matt mentioned earlier in this episode, World Green Building Week is running from September 21st through 25th. And on the afternoon of the Wednesday of that week, the 23rd, we are running a series of free webinars themed around the green recovery. Julie from UKGBC will be taking part, as will a whole host of other built environment experts and representatives from organisations like the Aldersgate Group and the Bank of England. You can find the full agenda for that event and register by going to ed.net, clicking events in the top bar and then dropping down to webinars and masterclasses. And also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast episode, there are 90 more waiting for you whenever you get a moment and wherever you get your podcasts. So we're listed on SoundCloud, Spotify and iTunes. If you follow us on any of those platforms, you'll be the latest to know about our next episodes too. Until the next episode, therefore, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from myself. Goodbye. Goodbye.